0: this is a 3cr community radio podcast encyclopedia is broadcast every sunday from 2pm for more info on anything you hear in the show head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the encyclopedia program page
1: Good afternoon, my name is Nick and this is In Psychedelia on 3CR, your community radio station, 855am digital and streaming at the website 3cr.org.au uh, That website is the place to go if you want to find out more information about Freedom of Species, who you just heard from and who will be back from 1 o'clock next week uh, on 3CR. Uh, at the website you can find uh, more information about all the programs that are on 3CR uh, including podcasts for a number of programs uh, and uh, their own pages. A lot of uh, a lot of the programs here have their own pages and a. Uh, community supporting the program as well. Uh, this is In Psychedelia and on the program this afternoon we are going to be hearing from uh, Dr Olivia Carter from the University of Melbourne uh, who spoke last year at a uh, Melbourne University uh, Psychedelic Science fundraiser dinner um, about psilocybin and uh, the sorts of halluc- visual hallucinations more specifically uh, that occur and, and some of the science behind what's going on uh, in the brain uh, that makes these sorts of things happen. Uh, we're also going to be uh, catching up with Ash very soon, Ash is um, uh, in at uh, in Sydney at the uh, Friedman uh, Libertarian Conference at the moment, which sounds like quite the mixed bag um, for anyone that's uh, aware of uh, libertarian politics. Uh, it, it seems to have um, a- everyone from sort of the, the the left, the right, the in between, um, and and from far ends of these uh, spectrums as well. I think I saw something about Corey Bernardi being uh, I don't know speaking something about what what he thinks is freedom, although this. This is the guy that, um... <laughs> seems to think that it's only freedom as long as it's uh, freedom that he uh, he defines. Um, but there is, is some interesting stuff going on there including uh, discussions on drug law reform uh, and drug policy reform which is exactly what we're talking about on this program um, and uh, there has been a lot going on uh, recently uh, in Melbourne we've seen uh, last weekend uh, the Sniffer Dogs uh, have been expanded, the Sniffer Dogs program expanded out to uh, the, uh, the night Uh, the night uh, precinct in uh, Chapel Street and around Chapel Street, that sort of area, with sniffer dogs going up to uh, people just walking on the street, minding their own business and people being searched on the streets as well. Uh, we're going to uh, find out, we're, we're following closely what's uh, what's going on with that campaign. We are going to find out more about what's been going on with it. Um, also, uh, I mean, of course, the ongoing debacles around uh, a, a medically supervised injecting centre uh, for Melbourne. Uh, there was another story from Footscray where uh, some of the local traders are a bit concerned about um, the, the drug use around there but the, the real problem isn't so much the drug use itself; it's the prohibitionary policies uh, through which we uh, end up seeing all drug use through, and this is generally something that uh, ends up with worse situations than what you would have if you if you looked at the issue sensibly and went, "Okay, we need to uh, we need to do something sensible about it, not uh, not tell people what to do and, uh, <laughs> and expect them to follow." That, I, I think that's and, and just to share something quickly with you, um, I think that's what, one of the biggest problems that we have: uh, some people that get very prescriptive about behaviour. Uh, Others' behavior, and I'm I'm talking specifically about uh, what a, what are commonly known as victimless crimes here. Um, these are these are the sorts of uh, crimes. Uh, Uh, that we've we've commonly seen uh, prostitution being another one like uh, drug use um, homosexuality when it was um, uh, illegal in a a lot of the world and a lot of Australia Um, these are crimes where the victim and the perpetrator are one and the same person the person who uses the drug is both considered a potential victim of the drug while also a perpetrator of um, whatever the the drug does Um, now people do sort of argue with this point and say oh no but there are victims Um, they're, they're sort of collateral victims but if we start to define uh, victimhood in that manner, then we can almost see uh, everyone as, uh, as victims of all sorts. And then we can certainly look at things like, um, uh, well, for example, I know this uh, television uh, series, 13 Reasons, that's been out on Netflix, has been uh, uh, stirring up some controversy over some of the content within it. And we could see that a television show could create victims of people through just sharing certain ideas that some people don't like. And this is, this is when it, when it comes down to sharing ideas that some people don't like, some people really like. Uh, it's it's a it's it becomes very murky territory. Uh, but uh, that's I, I, I think what what I'm going to do now is we're going to get Ash on the line in just a tick. I'm going to play a song for you. Um, it's from a Melbourne artist, a Melbourne violinist called Orca, and he is launching his EP uh, with the band Cool Explosions, uh, Lobocco and Zol Balint at the uh, Gasometer Hotel. Uh, It's $10 on the door, 8pm on Sunday, May 14th. So two weeks away uh, that's happening. And uh, this is Orca with uh, Crescent featuring Aliah on 3CR Community Radio. (laughs) Walker with crescent featuring Liahona ep launch is happening on sunday may 14th at the gasometer hotel from 6:30. ten dollars on the door uh and there is a facebook event as well if you want to go uh, have a look see for that one on the line now on in ash how you doing
2: Good afternoon. I'm
1: well. I'm a little hungover, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, you are at the uh, Friedman Libertarian Conference uh, in Sydney. That's been happening this weekend. Uh, it's a conference about uh, uh, well liberty. But um, tell us tell us a little bit how it's um, been going so far, because I know the Libertarians are a very diverse group, to say the least. They
2: they are a very diverse group. Like I, I think the first thing I'd have to say is like you might read about this conference in the paper. There's been a bit of reporting on it. And it tends to focus on the sides of the conference that I don't particularly like and the people at the conference I don't particularly agree with. So there are some conservative people here. Um, I guess libertarianism is a, a wide, wide church, I guess you could say, but um, distinguished by its tolerance for each other. So, you know, like the, the, the left-leaning libertarians don't necessarily like the conservative libertarians, but respect their point of view. The thing that I found about this conference that's really interesting is um, how kind of sophisticated they, uh, they, they're they starting to become this movement globally in um, spreading their message effectively and campaigning effectively. So I think, you know, for me, there's uh, a, a lot to take away for that, for SFDB. Um And, and it's, it's been really nice to be acknowledged uh, from people in the States, like just, starting up SSDP here in Australia. Um, Yeah, we had people from, you know, magazines and publications and, you know, big organizations in the U.S. going, yeah, love your work, love what you're doing. Um, So some of the topics that the the conference uh, covers, like there's a lot of people interested in economics. There's a lot of, I guess, a lot of people boring economic theory and market theory. Um, But there was a really interesting panel yesterday on compassion. And... um, uh, actually, it would be relevant for um, the previous show, Freedom of Species, there was a Gabe Buckley, who was a candidate for Liberal Democrats, gave a talk about how um, libertarian philosophies and, and moral principles should be expanded to include animals. And there's no reason why that shouldn't be the case for libertarians. If they're interested in not forcing anybody and not harming anybody that should extend to animals. I thought that was a really interesting one. Mm. Um, Yeah, and obviously uh, the drug policy panel that I I convened for yesterday.
1: So the drug policy Um, panel was yesterday, was it? Because I thought it was today for some reason. Okay, so how did... No,
2: no, it was yesterday, yeah.
1: How did the uh, panel go? Oh, tell us about who was on the panel first.
2: So the panel, we had um, Dr Alex Wodak, uh, who I imagine many of our listeners will know. is one of the leading drug law reform... Uh, experts in Australia.
1: Also the um, founder and, and of and the he, Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation.
2: Oh uh, Yeah, and he helped uh, found the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, The, the <laughs> some AIDS council, I think several AIDS councils, helped introduce the needle syringe program, helped start the King's Cross Supervised Injecting facility and ran St f- Vincent's f- f- Drug and Alcohol Clinic for... Um, 30 so years.
1: And that's the tip so, of the iceberg. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that, that's, uh, yeah, we could spend the rest of the show just going through Dr. Werdak's Um So he presented uh, uh, like an expose on a different argument for reform and some of the pros and cons and, and uh, highlighted the point that um, we should be arguing for drug laws that respect uh, individuals' human rights and dignity. And that should be the foundation for our argument, not about whether it's effective or not. It needs to come from a right foundation. So that was that was really good. Um, we had Dr. Colin Mendelsohn, uh one of um, Australia's leading tobacco addiction specialists, uh, really lay out what was happening in the vaping space and why we're not getting progress on that issue and, and how it's all playing out. Um, and um, then I, I got uh, a company in the United States they called ask you that do um, they do market analytics in in the cannabis market space so they're one of the, they're the leading global company doing uh, analysis and, and uh, assisting venture capitalists and stuff to understand the market so that they can uh, invest wisely and start up companies wisely. They, they recorded a short video uh, just kind of laying out what's happening in America and, and what that could mean for Australia, how, how our market might shape up as we you know, potentially liberalise our, our adult use, uh, recreational use of, of cannabis in addition to the, the medical cannabis um, industry here. And then we had a young entrepreneur from Australia, Adam Miller, who um, he's agreed to come on the show at some stage to talk about his company and what he's doing in the space, um, trying to leverage some international networks and, and people that he's working with to, to bring a bit of a united voice to the um, the business and industry side of, of the emerging market. Uh, so, so helping to find technological solutions for um, distribution, work with governments on creating sensible regulation around uh, how... how medical cannabis schemes in Australia can work more effectively.
1: Uh, it um, sounds like that's going to be a uh, topic that really needs to be uh, tackled head on because I, I've been speaking to a few well, yeah, business I, people over the past I, I, week who have said it's just over-burdensome.
2: Over that's correct, it is, and, and that's one of the things that he's looking at doing is, is trying to, because um, one of the problems that he highlighted was the, the different states and territories have different laws, and they don't necessarily match up um, in any kind of streamlined way with the federal laws. So, you know, there's, there's kind of a need for um, almost like a whole rethink of the way that we've shaped those laws so that they actually integrate well between states, because that can be a problem as well. Like if there's um, certain prescribing guidelines and, and medical uh, therapies that are available in one state and not another, it can get very complicated. So... You know, it's quite possibly one of the things that's really going to have to be nutted out at COAG, the, um... Uh, oh, what's it
1: called again? Commonwealth something. Co- Commonwealth... Association Something. something. It's, it's, <laughs>
2: it's, it's where all the, the states get the together. It's a meeting where all the states and territories get together, and, and they work on, like, um, shared... Uh, shared issues, such as the Murray-Darling Basin and, and things like that, like many things last waterways and, and regulations. So, so that was really interesting. Um... We had some interesting questions, and I spoke a little bit about SSP, obviously, and um, what we've been up to. Recep-
1: uh, receptive audience, so or good. did you have some uh, some questions that were a bit uh, bit heated at all? Because, as I said, the, the, the uh, libertarian movement is highly uh, divided and diverse. Or, well, well, maybe not divided, but diverse. No, certainly. look,
2: I think it was. Um, I think it was. No, I think it's fair to say that it's divided a lot of the time as well. Um, but no, the, the the audience was quite receptive. I got a lot of good feedback about the panel. Um, yeah, people thought that it was really good. A good range of speakers and covering some important issues. The the issue of vaping in particular, I mean, that's one that um, we've talked about it on the show. We've talked about what's happening in New Zealand. But uh, you know, I was kind of slow to to really embrace that issue myself because I just didn't know. You know what I mean? In, in I a lot of that's... uncertainty, you know, like skepticism yeah. isn't a bad place to come from. Um, but having read a little bit more of it now and seeing what's happening in the space, I think it it really is just one of the, the biggest public health issues like facing the globe. With the amount of people that smoke and the burden of disease that those people carry, you know, over their long-term smoking lives, um, it, you know, it really has the, the potential to have such a massive impact on on public health. Uh, I think it's, I think it's going to continue to be a really big issue, and it's one that's um, it's one that's a really uh, common and popular issue in the libertarian movement because um, you know, their ethos is, is around inappropriate government intervention for people's lives. Which is, and the state exactly. of play with tobacco at the moment is that we're having heightened tobacco uh, taxes and really, really strict and, and restrictive tobacco control while at the same time not allowing people to embrace the technology that from all the evidence we have so far is Significantly
1: less than smoking, uh, combustible tobacco, and this this actually um, brings so, us back to a, a point I was talking about quickly at the start of the show before um, before you're on the line, uh, where we we have this battle between people who want to prescribe uh, behaviours to other people and then punish them when they don't submit to that prescription, um, versus those who. Uh, More uh, look at the situation and then respond to the situation, which is what um, I think that's where we're coming from. Um, But those who are saying, no, we need to stand against e-cigarettes are trying to tell people who are already set in their ways, they have their behaviours, they're trying to say, what you need to do is change your behaviour or die of lung cancer because there is no in-between. And what uh, other people are saying, Actually, there is an in between if you just try and take your hands off other people's brains for a moment, let them make up their own minds and give them the better options. And it does look yeah. like vaping is the better option. I don't, there's not much debate well, over the I science. It's well, just petty speculation. No, not
2: really. I mean, you know, but like, and even if there's things that we discover um, within the vapor of e cigarettes that, that is harmful in some way, there's, there's, um, There's not a really clear biological mechanism where that could be more harmful or or even as harmful as the the multitude of chemicals that's released in in combusting tobacco. So, um, you know, like it's it's crazy to not go there. And one of the things that Colin highlighted was that Australia is really falling out of step with uh, the international community on this. Canada's moving forward, New Zealand's moved forward, the United States kind of was but i mean it's a bit of a roadblock at the moment with some weird regulation that's come in um recently but um you know in europe people are embracing it more in japan in particular there's been a significant shift uh, like millions of people have shifted the vaping of, of a smoking in japan so i i just i don't think it's a, a situation that that Sustainable into the long term and, and from my perspective I think it really does some damage to um, uh, like our public health institutions because right? it damages their credibility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know? Especially. And, um,
2: and I think that we want to have some we want to have some faith in our institutions that they're going to be doing their job and doing it well especially and organizations is,
1: like you know, quit and like count Ca- cancer council who um who their sole job is to reduce uh, the harm of tobacco products on society and this is like this is one of the one of the ones that still gives people that um that 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 thing that they want that sort of hand-to-mouth action and a little bit of something coming out their mouth so more people seem yeah. to go to it and yes it's not it's not as ideal as not smoking like <laughs> of course if you don't do something you're never going to come up against the risks of it but that's sort of that's again that's that prescriptive behavior thing yet they're uh standing against it um even though it seems to be uh something that is likely to lower the overall harms of tobacco smoke in the community um quite successfully
2: yeah 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 i think. Um I think eventually we'll get there, but it's like, the, you know, I don't think it's going to do damage to the tobacco companies so much on the way as it's going to do damage to um, the credibility of our public health body, you know.
1: Exactly. Uh,
2: yeah. So, uh, well, other than that, yeah, the conference has been good. It's been a bit of fun. this there's, you know, there's good people here, very interesting people.
1: Excellent. Uh, and uh how about uh, any uh news have you been following anything that's been happening this week um that you wanted to have a chat about now because there's has been a few things on this week
2: yeah there's I, I mean i haven't taken notes and done all the usual show prep but a couple of things that have um that i've sort of taken note of this week the victorian government released a new ad about their uh road safety campaign and um uh, i think it was chunky junk um the publication uh, put out a thing saying that they were basically getting slammed on their social media. Like everybody was pointing out the fact that, um, you know, even within the ad that they released themselves, they admit that their tests don't test for impairment and that drugs can stay in your system for several days, you know, which basically is an admission that it's not about whether a person is impaired on the road at that time. Um, it's a witch hunt. And this actually coincides with... Um, with a study that come out of the United States on drug driving there. Uh, the Drug Policy Alliance wrote up, wrote up a blog about it. And, um, you know, what all the evidence shows in the United States where they're really working on this issue, um, the report acknowledges that it's incredibly complex. There's a clear pathway with alcohol between level of intoxication and impairment. It's a clearly validated scientific response to uh, alcohol-induced impairment. And so, you know, to, to that extent, our drink driving laws make sense. I think most people would agree with them. But the idea that uh, if you smoke a joint on a Saturday evening and go through a drug bus on a Tuesday afternoon, somehow that affects your ability to, to, to drive and you should lose your license is something that people are um, they're just not on board with. Mm. Um, you know, things like cannabis, there's not even a clear... The science isn't even clear about impairment to do with cannabis in the first place, let alone about the amount of cannabis to cause impairment. Because um, there's discrepancies between in some of the studies that have been done, there's discrepancies between regular kind of higher used uh, consumers and um, people that might use occasionally. So if you're if you smoke cannabis every day and you haven't smoked a heap of cannabis on that day, it's possible that it has very little effect in terms of impairing your driving ability. Whereas if you're a person that doesn't consume cannabis regularly, well, you can smoke a half a joint and, and be pretty posted, you know, and that can significantly impair your driving. And it's very difficult to come up with some kind of fair and accurate test to measure this. Um, you know, and that's being acknowledged in the United States where they're coming up against the, the fact now that it's legal. It's a legal product in um seven states now, not including the medicinal cannabis, which is 27 states. Exactly. um, Uh, The work has been done. I I know with some of the legislation in Colorado and California and and, um, through other places as well, some of the money coming from the, the legal market is being reinvested into studying this kind of thing. It was kind of part of the agreement of legalization was that, well, now that it's legal, we can actually start it in in a much better way. We can try and understand what's happening and address it, you know, through a public health response or or even a law and order response that's that's, um, like a fair and balanced law and order response, you know, for example, like our drink driving
1: laws. Exactly. Something that uh, makes sense and actually uh, looks after road safety rather than ends up being a witch hunt for people that uh, (coughs) use non-sanctioned psychoactive substances, um, which is what it seems to be at the moment. Um, I saw something uh, pop up out of uh, New Zealand this week. Uh, with a uh, MP... Uh, well, first first of all, it's about uh, well, the so-called uh, spice issues. Spice is sort of a slang term now that's being used or it's been used for a while for uh, a wide variety of synthetic cannabinoid-type uh, substances. Um, uh, so this is dozens, if not hundreds, of different chemicals with uh, varying effects uh, ranging from fairly benign to potentially quite dangerous um, slash the sort of things that humans should not be consuming. Um, and in New Zealand, about three or four years ago, uh, they passed something called the Psychoactive Substances Act, uh, which created, uh, among other things, a ministry for psychoactive substances under the Department of Health um, in New Zealand and a whole regulatory framework, which was intended to be able to regulate uh, and uh, legalise the sale of low-risk psychoactive substances. And there was a process that they were uh, to go through to uh, assess whether something was low-risk or not and then various licensing conditions For those who would sell it. What ended up happening is at the last moment that Act had an amendment added to it, uh, which meant nothing could, uh, could pass without uh, animal testing. And I know that uh, you might be listening and thinking, well, that sounds fair enough. But um, uh, most... In fact, all pharmaceuticals that are used uh, in in human beings, all uh, drugs that are used in human beings, uh, are tested first in animals for uh, toxicology and safety, uh, because it is considered more ethical, I suppose, to uh, do that to animals first rather than to do, do it to humans. Um, that's a you know, this is a tricky question. I know that uh, science and technology are catching up and potentially overcoming this issue in the future. Um, but what it meant for that industry is that nothing could actually be uh, go through that licensing system uh, so they ended up in a roundabout way prohibiting all psychoactive substances which is what we 're seeing uh, happening across Australia now with a bill in Victoria uh, to be uh, heard in Parliament in probably in the next week or so so anyway in New Zealand uh, it's been about four years since this has happened and all the shops show, uh, shut down and all the products were removed from the market supposedly uh, but of course these things end up on the black market and a lot of people uh, start taking them and then you end up with a situation where it 's even less regulated than it was before uh, even more potentially dangerous substances with less oversight uh and uh, uh it's being reported in New Zealand rather poorly, but this is the trend we're seeing across the world as, uh, you know, zombie like drug or zombie like conditions where uh, people are apparently passing out and um, uh, and and having quite uh, quite intense reactions uh, so a New Zealand MP <laughs> called for a crackdown of sorts um, and uh, said uh, we, you know, we need to do something about this, uh, which I then quickly got on to some of my um, uh, Kiwi friends and said, um, what what is going on here? Does this MP not realise that it was that government that stuffed up their opportunity to avoid this problem in the first place by passing naive laws that ended up being prohibitionary laws, uh, which just passed the buck? Uh, so that's what we're seeing in New Zealand. We've seen this in uh, nearly every uh, uh, state where it's uh, been introduced. Uh, in the UK and in Ireland, there's been uh, reports uh, coming out of the sorts of problems around uh, some of these synthetics, but not not because um, they've gone away because of the fantastic government legislation that prohibited them and solved all the problems, uh, but because that prohibitionary legislation does exactly the opposite of what these people think it's going to do. It compounds the problems. It ends up pushing it on to the more vulnerable uh, homeless and um, prisoners, uh, especially in the UK, are feeling the brunt of this issue, and that's what we get with more prohibition.
2: Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Okay. Dark Times in New Zealand. Um, just one more before I'll have to get back to the conference. Yeah, sure. Thank um,
1: you for taking some time as well.
2: Oh, not a problem. am well, glad to be on the line. Um, the, the There's been more discussion of the um, Operation Safe Night in Melbourne with the sniffer dogs out on the street. I think um, we mentioned it in one of the previous shows that this was coming up. Um, so I think this issue is one that, I mean, how can I? The community are pretty pissed. I don't think I can put it diplomatically. The, the people out there in the community, I mean, I'm here in Sydney right now, and, and it's like you could almost feel the oppressive blanket of, of their sniffer dog program and their lockout laws and the restrictive uh, regulations around where you can smoke a cigarette. Um, you know, smoking is bad for you, you shouldn't do it. But if you are a smoker, there's, there's sitting in a cafe, with a morning coffee outdoors and having a cigarette is um, well, you know, it's something that people like to do and and there's much less allowances for places where people can smoke up drinks. So I think in Melbourne the people responding to this uh, new tactic of bringing out sniffer dogs to roam the street and sniff people in the line you know, lining up to go into a club, um, people are really concerned about it because they've seen what's happened in Sydney and they don't want to see Melbourne become like Sydney. You know what I mean, you come up here and it's like, yeah, everyone like knowledge, it. yeah, it's a bit rough. You know, walk out at one thirty, can't get a drink after three. Yeah, um, so I think that's one that we're we're going to see more stuff on that. Uh, I think that um, I think that it's quite possible we'll see people getting out in the streets and really, really taking this issue on. So that's, that's one.
1: I hope so. <laughs>
2: that I've got, well, I hope so too, Nick, yeah. Um, so that's one that I think, you know, we'll keep our eye on that and I don't think we've heard the end of it. And, uh, we'll no. wait and see what
1: happens. Uh, you enjoy the rest of your time at the Friedman uh, Libertarian Conference. I've had uh, Ash on the line and uh, thanks for being on the line. You'll be back in the studio uh, next week?
2: Indeed. Well, Thank you then.
1: Enjoy the rest of the time in Sydney. Uh, That was Ash uh, Blackwell, who's a regular on the program and also from SSDP Australia, up at the Freedman Libertarian uh, Conference right now in Sydney. Uh, This coming weekend, next Sunday, uh, the Australian Psychedelic Society is having its regular meet-up. Uh, The meet-up will be at the Suki Lounge in Belgrave, starting at 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, and featuring discussions on mycology, on mushrooms, on the culinary and the uh, uh, and, and and other mushrooms uh, do come along do come and learn some things uh, about the mycological world 3.30 it's $10 on the door and we'll also be hearing some music from Preston Skate Massive uh, look up psychedelicsociety.com.au for more information this is Preston Skate Massive now with chemical recognition on In psychedelia on 3CR Preston Massive with Chemical Recognition on Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Uh, I hear that, or well, I was told that, Chemical Recognition, that song was written about that feeling you get when you recognise a certain psychotropic chemical making itself known sometime after ingestion, and I'm told that's a true story. They will be playing next weekend, Sunday afternoon, at the Psychedelic Society of Australia Gathering in Belgrave at the Suki Lounge, which is old Ruby's uh, lounge if you uh, if you might have not been up that way in a little while. Um, Suki have been going there for a couple of years now, though, and it is quite the venue now. They've, they've certainly uh, uh, upgraded uh, a little bit. Uh, that will be happening from 3.30 in the afternoon on Sunday, uh, $10 on the door, and we're also going to be discussing Uh, discussing mycological uh, issues, mushrooms um, galore. So that's happening on Sunday afternoon. Please make it along uh, if you can. Last year uh, in about, I think it might have been about May last year, might have been just about a year ago, uh, there was a psychedelic science fundraiser uh, dinner that occurred at Melbourne University, a very successful event, and we um, auctioned off some stuff there uh, as well to raise a bit of money for PRISM, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. Uh, One of the speakers at that event was Dr. Olivia Carter, who uh, specialises, I believe it is, in neuroscience, specifically on um, the visual system, and she has done some research into... Uh, how psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms, uh, affects the visual systems, uh, she spoke at that dinner. I,
3: I normally like to make the point that um, they're called hallucinogenic drugs, but they very, very rarely cause full-blown hallucinations, you know, like a proper full-blown hallucinations. They, they normally induce very striking perceptual distortions. Um, we talk, We heard a little bit before about changes in mystical experiences and altered sense of self that I'll also go into a little bit more. Um, also very strongly influenced by personal environmental context. This can, I think, be one of the um, the, the potential downsides. And, and I think this is important here. These drugs are non-toxic and non-addictive. But at the same time, <coughs> I, you know, I don't think it's right to be saying. My personal view is that it's not right that, that it's impossible to have a bad experience. Um, Certainly, in, in some of my own research, there were people that had bad experiences, but it was always relating to these personal environmental contexts. Um, anyway, I'll go on. So I also like this example, for those that have not taken any of these substances before. Um, I, I do vision research, so I think this is a very a nice illustration of how you can end up, motion is such a powerful, Part of the experience is to to move and and, um, oscillate. But the idea that you can have motion without the movement of an object, I think is actually quite hard to conceptualise. Um, Except if you see something like this, then they're the types of experience that um, that people have. And these are the sorts of, of things that I was looking at a little bit more. Okay, so. I think it's interesting. I should go backwards and say my personal interest beyond the use of psilocybin is um, trying to understand how the natural neurotransmitters in the brain impact perception and cognition. And so, from my perspective, psilocin is is interesting in that it causes these types of uh, extremely profound, extreme, I should say, not, anyway. Um, extreme effects on the brain in terms of perception, altering perception, everything that you might think to be your, to be who you are. Um, but what I find quite interesting is about this is that they share very similar chemical structures with LSD and D- DMT, and a very um, important component of these drug effects seems to be their ability to bind to the serotonin 2A receptor. Now. Um, Within the brain, there's a lot of different neurotransmitters that are floating around. You've know, you probably all heard of dopamine and noradrenaline and there's glutamate and there's lots of different things. Within serotonin system alone, there's a lot of receptors, a lot of different receptor subtypes. Now, a few years ago when I was doing this research, it was thought that um, psilocybin really only activated the serotonin 2A and 1A receptor, but I said that now it's been updated to include many more.
2: But I think it's
3: this this serotonin 2A receptor that's particularly interesting. The the drugs that activate the serotonin 2A receptor generally cause hallucinations. Drugs that block the 2A receptor generally block hallucinations. Um, And so if you're interested in consciousness, that's what I'm interested in, separate to, to hallucinogenic drugs, if you've got a drug that is... If you've got a receptor that seems to be selectively causing hallucinations when that receptor is activated. To me, that's extremely interesting. That receptor's there in the brain of every single person, regardless of whether or not they're taking hallucinogenic drugs. So I'm particularly interested in what's that receptor doing most of the time. Um, Anyway, so we heard a little bit before about the the previous use of um, psilocybin in the lab. So I I might skip through this a little bit in terms of what was done in the past with the um, LSD psychotherapy. I do think, we, we heard um, in terms of alcohol treatment, I, I, I do think it's worth noting that it doesn't always work. The LSD used experimentally to treat schizophrenia did not have particularly great outcomes. Um, I think it was it was found that hallucinogenic drugs do not help hallucinogenic, people that experience hallucinogenic symptoms most of the time. Um, so, But anyway, I think think it's important to to look back at what has been done and what has been learned. So at that time, we also had Timothy Leary conducting the Good Friday experiments, which you're probably familiar with. Now, I went back today and had a bit of a look on Google, not Google, PubMed, to find out what was uh, what's been published in the last few years, because I know there's a lot of research that's been done at the moment. Um, I was particularly intrigued to see that the, the most recent paper, effects of Pallus- well, no, the effects of psilocybin, is looking in zebrafish models, testing the pharmacology and toxology, and the whole paper was explaining why zebrafish are the most appropriate animal to be testing for histrigenic on just thought that, was, thought that was interesting. But anyway, um, so recent studies have looked at cluster headaches. But in 2015, you know, there was really a huge number of of studies I know one of the goals of this current sort of forum is to talk about um, potentially doing these types of experiments but I think it's it's interesting or noteworthy that there's actually a lot of research being done around the world with with psilocybin particularly um, so a class headaches but there's also another study looking at reduced threat um, Reduces and threatened juice modulation of amygdala activity in humans, looking at spiritual experiences, reduced psychological distress and suicidality, changes in ego dissolution, alcohol dependence, face perception, obsessive compulsive disorder, tobacco addiction, and a whole stack of extra studies that were just based in brain imaging studies. So there are a lot of groups in the world doing this type of research in the, in the very recent um, past. Okay, so the work I'm going to talk a little bit in greater depth is the, some of the stuff that I was involved with personally. So this was work done with Franz Wollenweider and at the time the uh, postdoc, Felix Hassler, who I believe is not no longer there, but he was the um, really the senior postdoc that was involved in a lot of these early studies. Now they, in this lab they have two main uh, goals. And one is to model psychosis. I think a lot of their funding initially came from from this arm of the research. And basically, uh, the idea was being, well, if you can induce a psychosis-like state in an otherwise healthy healthy person, then we can try and understand um, how psychosis is being generated in a a person that's unwell. Um, They also ran a range of studies, I think they're still doing this, where they give people hallucinogenic drugs in combination with an antipsychotic medication to see which effects are blocked and, and this type of thing. Um, and I, I see there's a number of papers coming out from that lab sort of every year. So the, the other use is, is a much more a basic research uh, purpose, uh, looking at psych- psychopharmacology, using these drugs to understand the role of the natural neurotransmitters in healthy perception and cognition. And that was completely uh, my interest and, and why I ended up in this lab. Um, so I'm going to talk relatively briefly, but I'll go through one of the experiments that I did in great detail. I'll just explain exactly what we did. Um, but I also ran a number of other studies looking at things like binocular rivalry, I don't know if you're familiar with these things, or you know, working memory and attention. But I li- quite like this study because it, it's relatively um, sort of concrete in its findings and, and hopefully easy to relate to. So we gave people uh, doses of psilocybin. I'll go into a bit more detail later about the different doses and the effects. But during, these, um, during the experiments, we asked people to make judgments about a simple motion stimulus. Okay. So in the first case, there was a very boring um, breaking, moving to the left or to the right. And um, as the trial, if they got it correct, it, the next trial it became harder. And the way it became harder was that the little black and white bars became closer to grey. So, <coughs> sorry, after multiple trials, especially if they're doing well, this becomes just noise, right? So the, the idea is how sensitive is the um, very early visual processing in terms of motion perception? Then we had a second, uh, Type of stimulus, which involved a lot of random dots, black and white dots. In the, in the first instance, they were moving coherently together, left to right, and as you get harder and harder if people were doing um, well, they basically the, the proportion of dots that were moving randomly increased. Now, sorry, <coughs> um, people, healthy people, not taking hallucinogenic drugs, can do this with very small proportion of coherent dots, so normally if there's like 3% coherence, you get this very nice view of what looks like transparency. It looks like a film moving across a background of, of noisy dots. Okay, um, So that's coherent motion. Now, why was I using these tasks? So there's four reasons why we thought this would be interesting. <coughs> One is a simple anatomical reason. Um, a lot has been done looking at these particular tasks in terms of normal vision, um, and it's quite clear that the area, the, the very earliest stages of visual processing in V1 is capable of uh, resolving these types of tasks, Okay, but not these types of tasks. So the integration of individual motion signals, when you've got random dots moving everywhere, the only way you can work out the 3% of the dots are moving to the left to the right is by binding those disparate um, dots into a coherent percept. Now, It's pretty well accepted that that cannot be done A V one requires the next stage up of processing at at MT. Um, Okay, so in terms of a hierarchy, it's it's nice to say, okay, you've got the individual motion elements, now we've got to stick them together. So we wanted to see if the the effects of of psilocybin were selective to to, um, either of these two mechanisms. So... From a very sort of functional perspective in terms it's often reported the people that take these drugs they report the things are brighter okay they're, they're stronger they're brighter they can they can see better somehow there's a, a, there self reports of improved functionality and we just wanted to test that <coughs> psychophysically in the lab um, now clinically this was also interesting because coherent motion, but not, so this is this task here, but not contrast detection is impaired schizophrenia. Now, as an aside, I've just finished, we've just sent off a publication, a study, looking at this, we've we've replicated that finding, but shown in in 200 um, clinical psychiatric patients, that it's not specific to schizophrenia, but rather specific to psychosis. And and the greater the um, reports of, Symptom: The greater the symptom um, severity in terms of hallucinations and, and delusions, the greater the impairment in these tasks. But contrast sensitivity is not impaired. Okay, so this is what. i I'll just have a few little pictures. So in in our study, we had 12 healthy volunteers. Most of them were university students. Um, had three conditions. Um, make the point: 12 healthy volunteers in Switzerland was very hard to get for 12 healthy volunteers. Um, Partly because in Switzerland people are very uh, cautious, and at the time, I actually don't know what the rules are now, but at the time it wasn't, that, it wasn't that hard to get these substances, so the feeling was well, why am I going to do it in a lab if I could do it at home, if I'm that sort of person I would do it at home, and if I'm not that sort of person it's the very good reason and I don't really want to do that in, the, uh, in a lab. So it's actually genuinely hard to get participants. Um, so we had that every person did three conditions, placebo, low dose, and high dose. And people often ask how high was the high dose because this is in micrograms per kilogram in a um, synthesized, uh, a synthetic co- um, compound. I might, just, as an aside, say that the, the actual drugs that we were using was the same batch of psilocybin that was uh, synthesized by Albert Hoffman many, many years ago. They, made like a kilo of uh, psilocybin and it was locked away in the Swiss pharmacy bank somewhere, I don't know what they do but in some place in Switzerland where they have things that are safe and uh, the volunteer groups basically asked if they could uh, test it for purity and they showed that, the, that it was 99% pure psilocybin and as a separate thing they were getting ethics to run the studies but then they uh, got approval to use this this um, Original this, these original drugs. Anyway, that's an aside, but I thought it might be of interest to um, some people. Anyway, another, just another uh, anecdote to give a sense that these drugs were relatively intense. In one case, I had to move this plant because it had bad intentions. It was very, very interesting. The degree that, that pretty much everyone had insight into the fact that they were experiencing symptoms. So the person that asked me to move the, the plant said, "Look, I, I really, I realise this is sort of ridiculous, but it's really giving me the creeps. Can you just move it?" Um, <laughs> and another person. Uh, so I, I also published a, a study looking at working memory and attention, and on the working memory task, they had to push. Basically these boxes popped up on a screen and they had to remember the sequence at which the buttons pop, the boxes sort of changed colour, I can't remember exactly what happened. Um, and at one point, um, so the person was rep- pushing the, the boxes in the order that the, um, they thought that they'd come up. But they got it wrong so they basically had you got three chances I
1: think we're gonna have to leave that one there because we're just about out of time but the rest of that talk is available on youtube.com forward slash entheo TV it's the entheogenesis Australis YouTube channel where you can see a number of talks uh, on psychedelics and on um, entheogens same sort of thing but uh, on this topic uh, youtube.com forward slash Entheo TV also uh, head to the entheogenesis Australis website where you can buy tickets now for the December Psychedelic Symposium. Uh, You heard from Associate Professor Olivia Carter from uh, the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. She specialises in perception and cognitive neuroscience and was talking there about psilocybin and psilocybin's uh, effects on the brain and especially on... uh uh, on, on perception and visual perception and the sorts of uh, things that go a bit bizarre with the uh, with the plant uh, being, the, being the particularly bizarre one there. If you want to learn more um, about uh, mushrooms that, uh, uh, the, the, the psilocybin mushrooms, but also a number of other sorts of mushrooms, we are going to be talking about mushrooms uh, for the Australian Psychedelic Society next Sunday at the Suki Lounge in Belgrave from 3.30pm uh, $10 on the door and also Pre- uh, Preston Skate Massive will be playing there. Uh, going Goes until about seven o'clock so it 's just your Sunday evening you can still get home for a nice dinner uh, with your family or with your friends or by yourself or whatever you, you whatever floats your boat um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon uh, tomorrow is May Day and uh, of course there will be some uh, May Day celebrations starting at midday assembling at the eight hour monument and marching on to her majesty's theater um, so please if that's uh, something that you're able to go to uh, head along to that enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon and we will th- uh, see you, hear you next week. Gotcha.
0: This is Encyclopedia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter, or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR Community Radio podcast of Encycledelia. Find us on Facebook and Twitter.